Our podcast reviews well-known movies and contains spoilers. The podcast may contain mature subject matter and mature language. Listener discretion is advised. Enjoy the show. Quiet on set. Places, everybody. And action. Welcome everyone to the Hooked on Movies podcast. Today, we will be looking at the 1974 Mel Brooks classic comedy, Blazing Saddles. With me are Ken. Excuse me while I whip this out. Ah! And Ted. These are just people of the land, the common clay of the West. You know, morons. And I'm Eric. That's us, we're morons. I want rustlers, cutthroats, murderers, bounty hunters, desperados, Mugs, pugs, thugs, nitwits, halfwits, dimwits, vipers, snipers, conmen, Indian agents, Mexican bandits, muggers, buggerers, bushwhackers, hornswogglers, horse thieves, bull dykes, train robbers, bank robbers, ass kickers, shit kickers, and Methodists. That's just in my personal life. All right, let's talk Blazing Saddles. Ted, give us the details of this one. Okay, Blazing Saddles is directed by Mel Brooks. It was a screenplay by Mel Brooks, Norman Steinberg, Andrew Bergman, Richard Pryor, and Alan Uger. It has a running time of 93 minutes, a release date of February 7th, 1974. It had a budget of $2.6 million and a box office gross of $119.6 million. Blazing Saddles stars Cleavon Little as Sheriff Bart, Gene Wilde as the Cisco Kid, Slim Pickens as Taggart, Harvey Corman as Headley Lamar, Madeline Kahn as Lily Von Stoop, Mel Brooks as Governor Lepetomaine and the Indian Chief, Burton Gilliam as Lyle, Alex Karras as Mongo, David Huddleston as Olson Johnson, Liam Dunn as Reverend Johnson, John Hillerman as Howard Johnson, and George Firth as Van Johnson. Oh, that's you're not gonna put anyone else in. No, no. Johnson and Johnson. No, Johnson no, no, Gabby. Olson okay. Johnson. Well, thank you for that, Ted. I'm curious to see if you could find any bad reviews for this movie. Speaking of which, Uh-oh. I did find a couple on Rotten Tomatoes. This has a critic score of a certified fresh 89. percent It has an audience approval score of 91. percent So it is hard to find the negatives. But I did find two who don't have a sense of humor. The first one is Eric Henderson from Slant Magazine. He called Blazing Saddles a limp, shapeless mess of a film that trades in genuine respect for Western tropes for puerile vulgarity and joy buzzer showmanship. Vincent Canby of the New York Times also has no sense of humor. He said Blazing Saddles has no dominant personality, and it looks as if it includes every gag thought up in every story conference. Whether good, bad, or mild, nothing was ever thrown out. On the positive side, I picked these two. I picked Richard Scheichel of Time Magazine, who's pretty famous. He said, Gall darn it, if the whole fool enterprise is not worth the attention of any moviegoer with a penchant for what one actor commenting on another's Gabby Hayes imitation calls authentic Western gibberish. And then Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times said, There are some people who can literally get away with anything, say anything, or do anything and people will let them. 
Other people attempt a mildly dirty joke and bring total silence down on a party. Mel Brooks is not only a member of the first group, he is its lifetime president. At its best, his comedy operates in areas so far removed from taste that, to coin his own expression, it rises below vulgarity. But most everybody was universally praising this movie. I mean, it's hard not to, let's be honest. Very true. I guess unless you were a senior executive at Warner Brothers who they had no senses of humor, I guess they're not allowed to have sense of humor. So. Well, that's common with any senior executive of any uh, film company. Most of them do not yeah. have senses of humor. It's dollar signs. Then they find it funny. Yeah. Well, do you guys remember the first time you saw this movie? Because I do. I don't. It was probably high school. Mel Brooks is one of those things with Spaceballs and Young Frankenstein, and he's always kind of been there as far as my humor goes. So, yeah, this would have been right up my right up my alley. I would think I saw this probably as a preteen. I know it was sometime in the 80s, and I know it was sometime when we first got cable. Shocking. Luck- lucky enough, it was on movie channels like the movie channel or Showtime or HBO. Lucky enough, it wasn't one of those made-for-TV versions of it. You might as well just play 15 minutes of it because all the jokes are not even there. But yeah. It's criminal. About, yeah. Criminal. How about you, Eric? I remember this like it was yesterday because I went on a Mel Because it was. Because it was yesterday. Funny. <laughs> I went on a Mel Brooks Blitz. It was uh, November 1990, right before Thanksgiving. I went out and I bought... All these movies on VHS, probably four or five Mel Brooks movies. Before that, I really didn't know a lot about them. And I saw, oh God, which one did I see? It wasn't this one. It was a different one. It might have been Spaceballs. I think it was Spaceballs. And I just fell in love with it. I just went out and just rented VHS copies of all of them. 33 years ago, 32 and a half. Time flies when you're having fun. Well, hopefully everyone out there has seen this movie. But just in case you haven't, Ken is going to give us the plot. Pardon me while he whips this out. All right. In 1874, a new railroad under construction will have to be rerouted through the town of Rockridge in order to avoid quicksand. Realizing that this makes Rockridge worth millions. Attorney General Hedley Lamar plans to force Rockridge residents out of the town and sends a gang of thugs led by his flunky Taggart to shoot the sheriff and trash the town. The townspeople demand that the governor appoint a new sheriff to protect them. Lamar persuades the governor to appoint Bart, a black railroad worker about to be executed for assaulting Taggart. Lamar reasons a black sheriff will offend the townspeople, create chaos, and leave Rockridge at his mercy. After a hostile reception from the townspeople, Bart takes himself hostage to escape. He relies on his quick wits and the assistance of Jim, an alcoholic gunslinger known as the Waco Kid to overcome the townspeople's hostility. Bart subdues Mongo, an immersely strong and dim-witted yet philosophical henchman sent to kill him. Then outwits German seductress for hire, Lily von Stoop, at her own game, with Lily falling in love with him. Upon his release, Mongo vaguely informs Bart of Lamar's connection to the railroad. So Bart and Jim visit the railroad worksite and discover from Bart's friend, Charlie, that the railroad is planned to go through Rockridge. Taggart and his men arrive to kill Bart, but Jim outshoots them and forces their retreat. Lamar, furious that his scheme has backfired, recruits an army of thugs, which he hopes would include some common criminals like motorcycle gangsters and Ku Klux Klansmen and Nazis, and of course, Methodists. 
East of Rock Ridge, Bart introduces the white townspeople to the black, Chinese, and Irish railroad workers who have agreed to help in exchange for land. Bart explains his plan to defeat Lamar's army. They labor all night to build the perfect copy of the town as a diversion. When Bart realizes it will not fool the villains, the townspeople construct copies of themselves. Bart, Jim, and Mongo buy time by constructing a toll booth, forcing the raiding party to send for change to pay the toll. Once through the toll booth, the raiders attack the fake town and its population of dummies, which have been booby-trapped with dynamite. After Jim detonates the bombs with his sharp shooting, launching bad guys and horses skyward, the Rock Ridgers attack the villains. The resulting brawl between townsfolk, railroad workers, and Lamar's thugs literally breaks the fourth wall and burst onto a neighboring movie set where they are filming a musical number. The fight continues into the studio commissary for a food fight and spelling out to the Warner Brothers film lot onto the streets of Burbank. Lamar, realizing he has been beaten, hails a taxi and orders the cafe to drive him off this picture. He ducks into Man's Chinese Theater, which is showing the premiere of Blazing Saddles. As he sails into his seat, he sees an on-screen Bart arriving on horseback outside the theater. Bart blocks Lamar's escape and shoots him in the groin. Bart and Jim then enter the theater to watch the end of the film, in which Bart announces to the townspeople that he's moving on because his work is done, and he's bored. Riding out of town, he finds Jim still eating the popcorn and invites him along to Nowhere Special. The two friends briefly ride into the desert before dismounting and boarding a limousine, which drives off into the sunset. The end. So let's talk Blazing Saddles. We enter this movie in the desert. Railroad is going through on its way to Rock Ridge, and we're introduced to several of our characters at this point. Yeah, we get to see Bart. They're working on the on the railroad itself. Of course, the uh, thugs there are giving them a hard time not working hard enough because it couldn't be at least 114. And they're trying to get them to sing some work songs. That's um, a nice way to put it. That's a nice yeah, way, very of, putting nice it, way right? of putting it there. <laughs> Okay, this is set in the Old West, so... 1874. Yeah, 1874. 100 Shorten. years before our movie was made. Right, so we're not too far away from the Civil War. And because of the nature of the people who are working on the railroad, the bad guys want the railroad workers to sing slave songs. Slave songs. Spiritual slave Spirituals. songs. Spirituals. Yeah, they want them to Spiritual sing slave songs. Nice way like, of putting it again. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean... When you were slaves, um, you couldn't stop singing. You sung like birds. sung like birds. Right. It, this movie establishes right off the top what this is going to be. This is not a movie for people who are easily offended. They use a lot of language that should have never been usable, but was. Far from political correctness. Exactly. This, this is not politically correct. But this the, movie is a jab at racism directly. It puts its thumb in the eye of racists and bigots, and that's by design. Um, and Methodist. And Methodist. Mel Brooks, part of the reason he wrote this movie was to lampoon the westerns of the 40s and 50s, but also to thumb his nose at the backlash over civil rights to make fun of racists. That's why he brought in Richard Pryor to be one of the writers. And Richard Can you Pryor... imagine if Richard Pryor actually was cast? He wanted Richard Pryor, but imagine he... if he was in the role. Yes, he was supposed to be Black Bart, but unfortunately, some of Richard Pryor's demons popped yeah. up. Very unreliable, to say the least. And essentially what cost him the acting job, he called Mel Brooks on the phone 
from Cleveland, and he says, Detroit. I, was it Detroit? It was Detroit he, saying, I met some women, and, I need some and, money to come back. And I don't know why I'm here. <laughs> and Mel paid him. Ultimately, it was a good decision. I think it was a great decision. Richard Pryor, at this point in time, is larger than life. He's the biggest comedian going, right, at that point. In 74? No. Around like, that time. 73, 74? Actually, know. this was started to be made in 72. I, I yeah. agree. He was he really was unknown huge. at the time. His stand-up was huge. He was already controversial. He and Carlin were, yeah. they were tearing up the stand-up scene. Him, Red Fox. There was a reputation. And he wasn't an actor. He wasn't doing acting yet. No, no. no he no. wasn't Straight acting. Straight stand-up. But his reputation was out there. Richard Pryor was all over, like, late-night TV, like, doing the five-minute stand-up and everything. And, and you he, know, and the, the sad thing was, about that is, like, he was on all those shows. Oh, his stand-up was so clean. Oh, it yes. Was not Richard and, Pryor at and all on those stages. He, he and Carlin both flipped. Yeah. And when they both flipped together, they took off together. With him came a reputation of being not a clean comic and everything like that. So if, if he's in this movie, all of a sudden the attention is going to be on that and not on Cleavon Little. What did and Cleavon Little do before this? What's his He background? was a Stage. Broadway. Stage? Yeah, he was Broadway. Broadway stage? Okay. And he was also had a TV show at the time. Mm. I think he played like a medical doctor or... Mm. Um, I'm not sure what the name of the show was, but I think it ran from like 72 to 74 or something Got like it. that. His timing here is great. And Richard Pryor famously said, of, as, for, as far as Cleavon Little being cast, and these are Richard Pryor's words, he said, most people could conceivably think that I'm Cuban. They said, but when Cleavon walks in the room, nobody has any doubt as to, <laughs> as to who he is. And that's Richard Pryor. This is blue comedy at its finest. This is not for the faint of heart. This is not for the pearl-clutching scene. This is real-life comedy. I like the idea of Cleveland Little here as well. One of his first major films that he's done. I mean, we talked about that he was on TV and on stage, but he had never did a movie, at least to this magnitude. And Gene Wilder took it upon himself to kind of coach him on this role. And Gene Wilder actually said he was awesome to work with, which is funny compared to what Gene Wilder had to say about Richard Pryor, even though they did a few movies <laughs> together. Because Richard Pryor, even later on, like in Stir Crazy and movies like that, unreliable he Even, got unfortunately worse as he got older because he was a great writer for like the flip wilson show he knew how to write he had writing credentials so bring him on a writer made a lot of sense but even outside of that one incident that you mentioned eric they had mentioned that prior was late all the time yeah. for these type mm -hmm. of meetings these writing meetings just imagine if he had to be an actor in this film. I'm happy they went with somebody that I think was more reliable in this situation. And I think Cleveland Little plays it perfectly. I don't know if Richard Pryor could do much better than Cleveland Little does because of what is required of the role. All the funny stuff happens around the Bart character. Bart is kind of almost more of a straight man. He has some funny lines. Excuse me why I whip this out. But he doesn't But he really even play. plays that straight. I don't think that's a Richard Pryor strength to play it straight. At least not at that particular time in his career. It's a shame that his career really didn't take off after this. You see him in a handful of movies and goes back onto the stage. The only time I really remember him in anything else is Once Bitten with uh, Jim Carrey. He plays Lord like Hutton. yeah, he kind of plays like a Renfield type of character. And then he unfortunately died 
really young, I think in his mid-50s, due to colon cancer, and he also had like stomach problems throughout his whole career. Unfortunately, his career never took off. Few only had one great moment in time, and this is it. I think you should be proud of yourself. His timing here is absolutely tremendous. I can't picture um, anyone else in the role, to be honest no. with you, even Richard Pryor. I can't. A lot of people <laughs> compared this to like a Bob Hope, Bing Crosby type of movie, as far as working off of each other. Gene Wilder and Cleveland Little, and I see it. When I heard that somebody said that, I said, "Yeah, that does remind me of like a buddy film like that," because they did such a good job of playing off each other. Uh, which is interesting because that scene, like at the beginning, the jail scene where you have Gene Wilder upside down and they first meet, they didn't play together on that first scene because Gene Wilder wasn't originally cast as right. the Waco Kid. Um, I forget who the actor was, but he was so drunk in real life that he was, I guess, throwing up. Uh, Mel Brooks says he was vomiting some green stuff up. And so they ended up shooting Wilder's part by himself later on. They just edited the two together. Wasn't he an old Western actor? Yeah, he was. He was supposed to be, like, blind and... Mel Brooks wanted somebody who was older and actually had a drinking problem. He just didn't realize how much of a drinking problem he would have. Because Gene Wilder wanted this part originally, but Mel Brooks said he was too young for the role. And then finally, when it didn't work out, Mel rang up Gene and said, I need you. And of course, Gene obliged. Hasn't Gene Wilder always been the same age? He always looks like the same age. Even in his first role in Bonnie and Clyde, he still looks like Gene Wilder. (laughs) He never aged. It's like Gene and, Hackman. Some people yeah. just stay like 52 their whole life. Right. Even when they're 30. Gene Wilder's awesome here. There's not much more that can really be said about Gene Wilder. He's he's just amazing. And here again, it's the comedic timing. That's part of the brilliance of the writing here. And you have to have the right actors. And that's why this movie's so hilarious. Is because they know what's being written. And they know just how to let something sit for a second. Instead of just jumping right into the next line. And it's it's that timing that makes the movie. And you couldn't have two better people here than Cleavon Little and, and Gene Wilder. They know when to sit out. And when something really offensive is said, they don't ever side-eye to the crowd, but they kind of just are letting it sit for half a second to let it sink in. Then they move on and lampoon it. It's hilarious. I think at this time you have Gene Wilder, who is now have some movies under his belt. Because when we get to the producers, he's still kind of green. Even though he does a great job in that movie, we see him do, of course, Willy Wonka. And then he comes over and does The Blazing Saddles, and you could see how easy it is now for him. I I still think he's kind of a natural, but you could see how confident his acting and his comedic timing is by the time he gets to Blazing Saddles. Like, for instance... The scene that uh, Ted talked about when Bart goes out to meet the people and one of the old ladies gives him a up yours type of deal. And he comes back and he's giving him a lecture about the people and stuff like that. Yeah. When he says, you know, morons, mm. that was ablibbed. That wasn't right. in the was really? Yeah. Yeah. That was Gene Wilder who added that into it. That's, and that's a genuine confidence. laugh. And that's a genuine <laughs> laugh. That's the confidence now that Gene Wilder has. Gene Wilder is now at the height of his powers. You have Willy Wonka, Blazing Saddles, and upcoming, which we'll talk about in our next episode, Young Frankenstein. This movie has, it's a perfect storm of 
greatness. This is one of the heights of Mel Brooks's career. He's hilarious, and you have Gene Wilder, and you have Cleavon Little, and you have Richard Pryor, and you get these guys together in a room, and greatness is what you get. You get stuff that's just absolutely hilarious. And you take in somebody, too, like a Madeline Kahn and Harvey Corman. Harvey Corman. The supporting cast in this movie is just incredible. Yeah. Everyone plays their role to perfection. They're great. Even the Slim Pickens is Taggart and Taggart's sidekick. He was having a trouble using the N-word. <laughs> and Cleavon Little went up to him and he told him, he's like, what's the problem? He goes, I can't call you that. He goes, I like you. You're my friend. And Cleavon Little put his arm around him, I guess, and, and just told him, he goes, you know, we are friends. And that's why you can say that. He goes, you can say it because you don't mean it. He goes, because if I thought you meant it for a second, we'd be throwing fists. Yeah, yeah he's like, right. we're actors. We're writing. <laughs> this is what's written. You can exactly. say it. Exactly. Yeah. That was Burton Gilliam. Burton yeah, Gilliam. Burton Gilliam, yeah. yeah. Still around. Still yeah. Around. Everybody just plays it great. Even Alex Karras as Mongo. It's the perfect cast. It really for is. You, for those out there, Alex Karras was the dad in Webster, and he also played football yep. for the Detroit Lions. He was a five-time pro, pro bowler, all pro. He actually just got inducted into the Hall of Fame, I think, in 2020, if memory serves. Oh, really? Correct. Wow. Yeah, he was that good. He was yeah. a heck of a, he was a pretty good actor. He did more than just Webster, though, didn't he? He's in the movie oh, yeah. Against All Odds with Jeff Bridges. Yeah, yeah I remember yeah. that, yeah. yeah. And actually, funny story was, he got suspended from football for gambling on games. Oh. Yeah. And he actually he went and, Paul and, and he went out and tried pro wrestling. And pro wrestling made him think about becoming an entertainer. So that's how he really got into the business, you know, yeah. was through all that. He's a better, better actor than Merlin Olsen. <laughs> oh, I think Merlin Olsen did fine on Little House. Give me a break. And his FTD commercials. Little crap I, on the prairie. Just because it has happy endings, that's all. <laughs> it has a happy ending, all right. Pardon me yeah. while I whip this out. <laughs> as far as the casting goes, I adore Madeline Kahn. In fact, Madeline Kahn yeah. is my favorite movie actress of all time. There's just something about her. She's beautiful. She's funny. She's just the whole package. I mean, she was in the movie Paper Moon before this, got nominated for an Oscar for that role, and then also got nominated for an Oscar for this role, which is amazing in itself. I mean, that she comedy for a supporting, comedy right? Supporting actress, supporting actress, so hard for a comedy, comedy. To get nominated especially for this type of comedy. Yeah, this yeah. controversial type of comedy. Mm -hmm. She's just funny. I mean, her imitation of Marlene Dietrich. From Destiny Rides Again, which, of course, is one of my favorite Jimmy Stewart westerns. She hits it perfectly. In fact, I'm kind of surprised she didn't get sued by that family for her imitation of her, because it's dead on. I love the stage performance. I love I'm I'm Tired. Now, Mel Brooks does a great job with the music here. You know, when he writes the actual theme song to Blazing Saddles and I'm Tired. You get Count Basie in there, too. And actually, later on in High Anxiety, he gets an Academy Award for the song. So he's very gifted in writing. We talked a little bit about that in the producer's show. Some of us didn't like some of the songs in the producer's for the musical. But here and you know around this period of time, he could really do no wrong, it seems. 
Well, the great thing about the Blazing Saddles theme is that they didn't tell the guy singing it that it was a comedy until it was over. And then once he saw the script, then he realized what he was being <laughs> a party to, and he signed off on it that it's okay. But they told him that this is a serious Western. Then he sang it like one of those cheesy BS John Wayne dollar movies. Now, uh, now, Ted. Come on. It, it sounds I, like the song, you know, The Man Who Shot Liberty Balance. It's kind yeah. of in the same vein and it, it doesn't sound like it's comedy written song so it played seriously perfect why it works really well at the beginning of the of the movie going back to madeline khan i wish we had more madeline khan i just simply adore her and then her seduction scene with bart trying to seduce him and then of course he turns it's it true. around on her it's true, it's true. <laughs> yeah just her the way she said when he reads the letter when he, when he when he says it to, to him about coming back to mm-hmm. his dwelling room, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the, way he, yeah. the way he reads it is, is is perfect because it's exactly how she would have said it. And unfortunately, she also left us very young, and she died yeah. of cancer, I think, in her mid fifties. And of course, she's known for other Mel Brooks movies, History of the World Part One, and High Anxiety, and just a couple of other movies. And I think she. Young Frankenstein, Gene, yeah, she's Frankenstein, young Frankenstein, Frankenstein too. which we'll yeah. talk about next. And then she works again with Gene Wilder later on in uh, Sherlock Holmes' Smarter Brother. She has that repertoire with uh, Gene Wilder as well. And Gene Wilder actually has said that she is the most gifted actress that he's ever worked with, that he's ever known. She is really important to this film. It's that nice diversion that we get outside of the two main leads. And I think she just knocks it out of the park. And the fact that she got the Best Supporting Actress nominee is well-deserved. Oh, yeah. And that's a debate for another time, but I, there's a lot of people that believe that comedy has always been short-shifted by the Academy. And there's people that actually believe that it's harder to do comedy than it is to be a, like a regular actor. It's insane how many comedies get overlooked by the Academy, and the fact that she got nominated for this, it's a testament to her. And yeah, she is great. She's awesome here. Her timing is perfect. One of the little subtle things that in my people might miss is when Taggart's army goes into the fake rock ridge, she takes the Nazis aside and is singing the song from the producers right. with the Nazis, and she's got them all cornered by themselves. Just as a funny little thing like that, just something simple like that, but she elevates it so you you notice it. Harvey Corman here, too, is great. And even though he says that he's one of his monologues, that he's going to get the Best, best Supporting Actor Yes, I love that. Nomination. Truly, he's most... about to risk a Best Supporting yes, Actor. Right. Yes, right. It's beautiful. Yes. He's, he's hilarious. And he plays a, an amazing bad guy here. But he's bad, but you still laugh at him. Because he's because a smart villain. That's the thing. It, he's such a an eloquent, smart villain. You're like, yeah. you gotta love him, you know. Because you've got you've got Mel Brooks's uh, Governor Lepetamine, who's just right. like a complete bumbling idiot. You know, the brains behind the the state right. is is Headley Lamar. That's so, Headley. Yes. Yeah. He's so hilarious. The interaction between he and Slim Pickens is just so funny because. Slim Pickens plays such an an idiot, and 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 Hadley Lamar is just so frustrated with him. He just plays it perfectly. It's 
here again, that's another guy that's really at the top of his game. I mean, it's a testament to to him, too. I mean, if you look, some of the most classic moments in comedy TV history come from the Carol Burnett show with him and Tim Conway. I think it's that TV show that actually helped him develop into this type of actor because he does so much sketch comedy and ab living and things of that nature i think he uses that experience to great effect here and the fact that he plays it for the most part straight again he's the smartest man in the room that's what he's playing or i should say he's playing the man who thinks he's the smartest man, smartest in the room. man in the room. except for the time where he's taking his little bath and he needs this little froggy yeah outside of that <laughs> that's <laughs> funny too yeah it's haggard daddy loves froggy one of my greatest regrets is when Tim Conway and Harvey Corman were doing their routine. They were doing a show together, and they're going to theater by theater. I had a number of opportunities to go see them, and I didn't. It's one of the biggest regrets I've ever had when it comes to entertainment-wise. His timing here, and it's with, and with every actor. It's not just with Slim Pickens, Madeline Kahn, dealing with Mel Brooks. They're playing with the paddles. You know, it's got... <laughs> You know, oh, it's defective. He's like, right again, sir. And he's just yes, playing sir. with the paddle. Yes. Think of your secretary, you know, trying to get the pen in, you know. It's, yeah, right, right. You know, right. Because he plays and Carol Burnett, and he's working off of great people like Carol Burnett herself and Tim Conway, he's able to adapt to any type of actor and their style and make it work. And Harvey Carman is probably one of the most underrated comedian actors, I think, of our time. You know, I don't think he gets enough praise. When you talk about the Carol Burnett show, I always hear Carol Burnett and Tim Conway. But Harvey Corman, to me, is kind of like the constant. In, the glue in, between them. I would say that. Yeah. That's yeah, a great right. way of putting it. Yeah. Anybody that I was around, as far as my family goes, it's always been Harvey Corman and Tim Conway. I mean, Carol Burnett, of course, is her name's on the show. But, yeah, they've always been a duo to me that I've never had heard one without the other, really. But don't forget the first few years of the show, Tim Conway wasn't even right. on the cast. I mean, he, he would show up from time to time, but he didn't become a permanent cast member till later. You had mentioned as far as bringing sketch comedy to Blazing Saddles, and that's kind of the atmosphere that Mel Brooks wanted to foster. Even in the writing room, we had the four writers. It was more of a collaborative effort. It does have that sketch comedy type of feel to the movie there's a lot of set pieces kind of like a sketch comedy would be i think that is another thing that adds to making this work and i think we've said it before here in the last few minutes that when it comes to comedy timing is everything and the timing here is perfect we can still throw all the laurels at the people here i don't think any of these jokes work even when things kind of could go off the rails when they break through and they end up on the Warner Brothers lot, that still works. And that could have been played as something extremely silly and over the top. And it's not. It just it feels like a natural transition for for the movie. I, you have a young Dom DeLuise playing the director. Oh, he's incredible. Dom yeah. DeLuise is great in this. It, it's so much fun. It's and it's totally out in left field. Nothing to do with the movie whatsoever. Right. It's like a complete shift to 1974 now. And it's just like, what is this, a gay dancing routine now? What is going on here? And I think they did that on purpose because sure. they didn't want anybody to take this movie seriously with all the N-words and references to other controversial topics in the movie. So they 
broke that fourth wall just to show them that this is only a movie and we're having fun. I think that was the purpose of doing that, was to say, hey, get over yourself if you have a problem with it. Exactly. I like the pie but, scene, though. I like when they're in the, the cafeteria and they're throwing the pies and he's got yeah. all those pies. And I, I enjoyed that. I actually don't really particularly care for the big hat dance scene so much. Um, I think it's a little dated. And it's the one part that if I were to say that I, I felt where I was a little condescending a little bit was that section. Just because the other people who say like the N-words or make references are usually bad people or bad people that like turn a leaf. But here, Dom DeLuise is not really a bad person. And he kind of utters something that it just throws me off a little bit. So it's not terrible. And so don't get me like, I don't think that in any way is anybody being homophobic or anything like that. But it just doesn't for me play well for almost 50 years later. Just for me personally. Everything else I'm kind of fine with because... I know what they were trying to do, but here I'm, it's a little, little off. And that's kind of how the whole point of this whole movie, something might not be for somebody, but somebody else might find something very amusing. What scene are so, you referring to, Ken? What, what specifically is it him being really belligerent to the dancers? Yeah. When he goes out to the dancers and he goes, listen he, to me and he uses yeah. that word. It bothers me a little bit that he says that. And yet it's, they come to defend them, too. When, he does uh, come to defend them. I would say one yeah. of my favorite parts of the scene, though, Not is, the when, yeah. is <laughs> when they're um, they're all fighting. And one yes. of the cowboys hits one of the dancers, and he, they go through the tunnel. Right. They come right. out, and, he's, and he tells them, my car is parked up. Right. <laughs> it's by the car. Right. Right. Yeah, I thought that was, was yes. funny. But that part when Dom always says that, it always stuck in my craw for the longest time. and. It's the only but, thing that but I the whole with. movie. I understand what you're saying, but the whole movie is just based on any type of stereotype or racism or homophobia or anything negative right. against any specific. I mean, the Irish, the Chinese, right? Uh, Indians, Black Native people, Americans, Indians. Yes, uh, let's Jewish I, people. Jewish people. Yes, I mean, there's every, there nobody is off limits. Nobody. Everyone is, no, a, is a target. I, I get that, and I understand it, too. It, but for whatever but reason, I, it's just hard for me to let go of it. I totally understand. Even women. Even women. Even, well, yeah, even Harvey Corman yeah. slaps Madeline Kahn when she's tied yeah. to the pole. I um, mean, it's everything. Everyone is a target. I understand, Ken. It, I do. I understand, too. We can't stop time. And what that is is a testament to how we've evolved as human beings. Hearing somebody use that word with a hard T at the end, I mean, he just lays into that word. It's hard. It's difficult to hear. And that's a testament to how we've come that we know that that's not right. It can be jarring. For me, it's just the scene makes it feel like they're making fun of the homosexual community more than everybody else in the film. And I yeah. think because back then being gay was it was it was, it was not it, what it is now. It's not what it is now. So if you brought it it's up, not as accepted. You used it as a comedic type of thing. If you brought it up in a comedy movie, because it was funny, if something turned out to be gay. I think you, what you're kind of saying is you feel like it's punching down instead of punching up. That's and, a little bit more what I'm saying. Yeah. Yes, I don't think they're trying to be like rude like that, but it, right. for me personally. It comes off being that way a little bit. I've been honest about what we've talked about as far as comedy goes before. Nothing offends me. But I will say... Except Lyle's when, 
the first <laughs> right. John Wayne offends you. <laughs> well, you. Well, that's a whole different issue. Mel Gibson's um, not your favorite person. No, he's not. But um, <laughs> we got a list of things we'll that keep going on here. Yeah. Here, here's. But when it comes to comedy, I'm pretty open. The first time that they use the N word right at the beginning of the movie, it's jarring. My mind has to shift going to ah, this is comedy, and this is what I'm watching. Blazing Saddles. That was the first time you saw it. Do you remember that? Oh, I You're can't. Like, huh? Yeah. Looking around. This, is is this okay? Should, my, is this it's like okay watching for me porn to see? or something. You're like, hmm. right. So what I would say about the N word at the beginning of the movie, like the introduction to it, what makes me feel more comfortable about it at the beginning is the offense that the workers took from it. Yeah, when, exactly. When the first guy said it, yeah. it didn't play off like he said it, and they they let it go. They first got mad, but then he's like, "Hold on one second. The and then they like, "Hold on." Yeah. And then they go into the the song. I get no kick from champagne. And then they don't know the words to Swing Low Sweet Captain Lady. And then, of course, they all start doing it, make themselves look like idiots and stuff like that. So I liked how that's played out because we see that that's an offensive word. You know, what they're going to do with it instead of going and and starting to fight with them, because they're going to lose that fight. I mean, you got these guys with guns, and it's not a good time to try to challenge this. But Fire then we the see governor and tell him I said, "Ow!" Yeah. <laughs> then we see the the civil thing later. Yeah. yeah, right, right. Almost lost two hundred dollar hand card. Four hundred dollar hand. Four hundred dollar hand. They're gonna let us die, boss. They're gonna let us die. <laughs> yeah, and that's where what I think lacks in the song and dance routine at the end. After he says that, there isn't a rebuttal to it. And later on, they're even when they say yes, they do the steam thing. He does it in the producers later on, uh, where they go yes, and he goes. Producers is before this movie. No, I'm talking about the musical. Oh, oh. so he uses it again. Mel Brooks likes to use what works sometimes Jokes. for him in other movies, and he repeats it over and over and over again. I guess that's why I have a problem with this scene a little bit. Okay, can't argue with you. I disagree with you, but I can't argue with you. Yes, because you lose that argument. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I, I do kind of dig that they do break the fourth wall a few times. I think it's kind of funny. I think Cleavon Little does it the best. There are times where he gives the side eye to the audience, like, you know, these people are a bunch of idiots, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> You're so talented, and they're so dumb. dumb. And he's looking right at the camera. Right. Oh, baby. Yeah. <laughs> Harvey Corman talks to the audience a couple of times, too. I, I, I think that's funny. It brings you into the joke. It can be overused. I think they do it just enough here that it, it's really funny. It's spread out. It isn't consistent. It's here, there, at the end. Going back to Harvey Corman, one of my favorite scenes, though, is when he goes out and he um, talks to the hangman. And he and continually got, hits his head. He's got a cowboy on a horse, and both of them have a rope around their head. Right. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's just that's the kind of comedy. It's that's those sight gags that you have to take a double take that I enjoy so much. And of course, we have the Doctor Gillespie murders before that, so he's in that wheelchair. I want to find out what Doctor Gillespie did. I mean, yeah. Right. Right. I'm curious. <laughs> You know, a man in a wheelchair that looks like he's about 70, what did he do? And then Taggart jumps into his lap. Yeah. Now Taggart's just man and his horse being hung. That that was kind of strange, though. That was a little awkward for him to jump on into his arms like that. And then, of course, when Harvey Corbin is kind of doing it with the little statue there. Yes. 
I want yeah. it. I want it. I can uh, feel it. I can feel yes. it. What sells that, though, is the look on Slim Pickens' face Yeah, as he's doing that. Ted, you would appreciate this with Slim Pickens. The reason why he got this part was Mo Brooks saw him. Dr. Strangelove? Dr. Strangelove writing the, the yeah, rocket. Missile. The nuclear. The missile, you know, writing it like a cowboy. And he, that's what really made him think about Slim Pickens for this role. Well, they were saying that Slim Pickens, when the filming of this movie, he would just be outside having a campfire and just talking and yeah, stuff. He, just a real cowboy. Sleeping outside. Um, yeah. Sleeping outside, man. I don't know if exactly if it's 100%, but the end of Dr. Strangelove was supposed to end up with a pie fight in the war room. Oh, was and it really? So, yeah, that was supposed to be the original ending. I don't know if that's what they were going for at the end with the pies. And the pie fight between the everybody, like Ken had mentioned before, sometimes you don't really know what to believe of what Mel Brooks says. He does like to spin yarns, and he's good at it. One of the other classic tropes that they use here in the movie, which a lot of people considered the most offensive thing in the entire movie, which just blows my mind, it's the rule of three and the rule of 17. This was brought up in The Simpsons with, is it Sideshow Bob? He steps on the rake and it hits him in the face. And you brought it up in our Arsenic and Olace. Teddy, you going up the, the oh, staircase yeah. with the right. charge. It's, yeah, it's the rule of three and the rule of 17. If somebody does it three times, it's funny. If you do it four times, it's not. But if you do it 17 times, it's funny again. It's the whole farting thing. It's fourth grade humor let's be perfectly honest that's the type of humor it is and it is funny and but that's a jab at cowboy movies i didn't think about it until Black some coffee it, and beans all day right yeah that's all they eat in the old cowboy movies is beans and coffee and it's like of course that's gonna you're gonna blow <laughs> up like the freaking hindenburg <laughs> when they did a tv version of the movie they don't <laughs> yes. even play the sound of the farts but the bus is still so going up and down. Still going up, so it's like, yes, it's so it's like a uh, like a little dance almost without right, the, without right. the parts. It's ridiculous <laughs> that you can't out even do every, a fart. Out of everything in this movie, that is considered the most offensive part of the whole movie. Crazy. I don't. It's I so have heard that. I know that just makes me laugh even harder. It's fourth it's grade like, humor at its finest. It's it great. is. It's exactly what it is. And the great greatest line. I, I think we need some more beans. <laughs> I, think, like, I think Taggart, boys, we have some more beans. I think, I think you've you had boys enough. Yeah. <laughs> and Mongo's sitting there eating them with the ladle. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You know, I think occasionally you need that fourth grade humor as long as that the whole movie isn't a fourth grade yeah because then level. it turns into dumb and dumber too yeah exactly which one of the worst movies i ever seen in my lifetime but yeah it's okay to have it here especially in this case where it's not very long the joke runs for about 30 seconds to a minute and it's funny and, and it kind of segues into mongo having to go and try to kill bart I think you need something silly like that before you're getting ready to kind of go kill the sheriff. It kind of sets up the next scene as not being so serious. You know, and the movie length on this is great. An hour 30 is perfect. Yes. I mean, the length it's is tight. beautiful. It is really tight. There's no wasted movement. It flows and beautifully. That, yeah, and that goes with the, the timing. At no point do you sit there and say, man, I wish this was like 20 minutes longer. Because 20 minutes longer, you're running into that point where stuff is going to start to get old. And yeah, it's... now you're thinking, okay, why are we, you know, dragging this thing out longer than we have to? Right. I think great comedies are shorter. Like you said, you don't want to play the same running joke over and over again. It gets dull after a while. And I think keeping it 
this short is perfect. Unless you have something brand new to enter into the film, which I don't see a reason to bring anything new. We haven't even talked about the townspeople. They're all Johnsons. 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 So is that a rip on all rednecks are related to each other? I think it's an an incest kind of thing, yeah. Yeah. That they never leave town. It made it easy to make the Howard Johnson joke, which nowadays nobody gets because Howard Johnson's right. right. That house joke? Is that the one you're talking about? Yeah, the Howard Johnson's, yeah. Yeah. And he only has one flavor, even though Howard Johnson's, yeah. when we were growing up, had 28 flavors. Did Howard Johnson's become Baskin Robbins? Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I never saw they had ice cream, Howard Johnson's. Yeah, they were, that's what they were famous for, 28 flavors. Oh, I did not know that. Before so, Baskin Robbins became uh, 31 flavors. And then the lady who plays the um, school mom, the one that does that. Yes. speech right there that everybody you know then she you know she gets she's so quiet and then she yells it out and everybody yeah. like freaks out that's uh, fun don, too don DeLuise's wife oh yeah, yeah. okay yeah. john then, hillerman very funny howard johnson he later went on to magnum pi higgins higgins exactly. Higgins, yeah. yes and tom huddleston yeah <laughs> ended up movies. later in life being the distinguished mr lebowski a lot of people that have gone on to do other things in this movie. The older Johnson with the small circle glasses, mm-hmm. he's a famous actor from westerns and western TV shows too. I can't exactly place exactly where he's in, but he I've seen him in other things as well. These are character actors that fit in really well. A lot of these character actors that are playing the Johnsons, we just see them in so many other movies playing so many different parts. But I like the preacher too. I love when he talks about uh, people stampeded and cattle rape. I just thought that was like one of the most hilarious lines. And that's the other thing about this movie is the lines are all over the place. Before we started this, we we're trying to think of our lines and there was so much that are just so classic and so funny that it was hard not to use any of them. It was. People of our age, this is the kind of movie that we quote back and forth to each other because we're all in on the joke. But when Mel Brooks received the Kennedy Center honors. Barack Obama's the one that gave him the honor. He talked about how much he enjoyed this movie. People of our age, this is a movie we quote to each other, and we're all in on the joke because we all know what they're making fun of. <laughs> we we get it. And the funny thing is, when we were younger and we didn't get it, it was still funny. And as we've gotten older... You laughed we... more at the fart jokes than anything yeah. else. Yeah. I mean... It's one of those films like Airplane where you're not going to get all those jokes when you're younger, but as you get older, you start realizing, oh my goodness, that's what they meant by that. That's what they meant by that. And that's why it's one of those movies that's lasted as long as it does. It's because people can, like us, can come back to it now and go, wow. It continues to amaze us when we watch the film. It's like the line when the governor keeps calling him Hedy Lamar, Mm -hmm. and he's like... It's 1874. You'll be able to sue her. I didn't know what they were talking about. No, right. It's funny that you brought up Airplane because as I was sitting watching the movie last night, I was thinking Airplane may not exist without Blazing Saddles. Blazing Saddles is really one of the first movies to really do this, that really stuck its finger in the eye of what would be considered civil society and really opened up this lane of, you know what? We can be smart, but we can also stick it to the man as well. Because Airplane does its fair share of that as well, even though it's a really, it's a spoof movie. 
it has a lot of that intelligent comedy as well, which is why it lasts the test of time like Blazing Saddles. I wouldn't say that this is the first movie to usher in this new type of comedy, because I do think this is the next level comedy, but I do think it's the most recognizable that started this new level of comedy. Or in um, your face. Yeah, the more in your face type of comedy. I mean, we've seen other movies do it. I think a funny thing that happened on the way to the forum, you know, was before this, I think kind of one of the starters of that. But this movie, I think, is really the one that people look at that made that jump for, like you said, for movies like Airplane, Kentucky Fried Movie, that next level of comedy, which is not totally stupid. You have to have some intelligence to get half of these jokes. The other half of the jokes, you don't need any intelligence at all. It's fourth grade humor. So I think that's what I like about this film is it has a combination of both. lets us gradually grow up with it. Just like Airplane. And if I go watch Airplane right now, I'll probably still see something that I hadn't seen before. And be like, oh, I get that. Or I I didn't notice that before. So this movie helps usher in a new uh, era of comedy. Without Blazing Saddles, would Airplane have been able to make a pedophile joke? Maybe, maybe not. Probably not. not. Like I said, I still think the humor was there. Hey, Billy, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Yes. I mean, come on. Uh, You like movies about gladiators? Or, you know... (laughs) Coffee. I take it's my direct. coffee black, like my men. <laughs> yes. And think and think I, about Kentucky Fried Movie was made in seventy seven. That's only three years after this. Yeah. Right. That movie goes pretty hardcore into some serious uh, topic. Some of that stuff is kind of hard to, to swallow. Some of it is just <laughs> yeah. too, said, too funny. Yeah. yeah. I think this movie sets the bar. It is so intelligently put together the way the humor and the writing and the acting and the plot it is just incredible so here's the question because we've talked about this outside of the podcast okay can this type of movie be made now no absolutely not god man if it was made it would probably be made on netflix or it would be something something streaming it would be something different that's so tough i don't think i don't think it can be made it definitely would not have the same effect. No, it wouldn't. Is that a chicken and egg question? Because without this movie, there's nothing like it. The difference is between, it's not really a chicken and the egg, because the movie was made. It's 1974, right. the movie's made. It's done. Society has evolved, has changed. Political correctness has come in hardcore. And here we are in 2023, and you're talking about making a movie of that caliber do you think a studio whether it be a netflix or Mm. warner brothers or anyone would make a movie comparable to it i think they would the the thing is though that it won't be as popular and it wouldn't be as classic as this movie is there's just going to be more people having problems with it we already have people in this generation that have problems with this movie there are oh, political I mean, correctness. Absolutely. There are, there's organizations out there that want this movie banned, which is ridiculous. Oh, wow. You know, so, I've, not, I've not read that. But Is it the Methodist yes, again? Um, it's the Methodist. It's the Methodist. Yeah. <laughs> Damn Methodist. I'll tell you. Here's the thing. I would like to say that it could be made, but in reality, I know it probably couldn't. Because of the mere fact that if I want to go watch stand-up, I have to go special to find people that I think are funny stand-up. Because stand-up now is all has to be filtered. Dave Chappelle's not filtered. Yeah, yeah. But, but you he know what? Backlash. Netflix, 
he caught backlash. That's the thing. I don't think any of the studios would want to catch this type of backlash. Yeah, but look at 1974. There's backlash back then. I mean, there's a reason why the studios didn't want certain parts of this movie to be kept in the movie. It wasn't kosher. (laughs) It wasn't something that people, uh, everybody accepted. And so I think... I wonder if that should be taken out of this podcast. But I think you have the same dynamic now than you did back in 1974 in, in a lot of ways. So I do think you can make it. Now, like I said, would it be as popular? It's hard to say. Because in this day and age, I think comedies are more subjective than they were back when we were younger. Comedy's always been subjective. And what's funny to one person is not going to be funny to another. Now, I think one of the things that has changed is the megaphone has changed. Those who didn't have a loud megaphone before back in the 70s when this movie came out now have a loud megaphone through social media because let's be perfectly honest being offended is nothing new to people it's now that people have a louder megaphone and they're allowed to shout it over social media and to cause an uproar and the fact that the media itself provides these people with an outsized megaphone as well So, back in 1974, people were offended. People were offended by Richard Pryor. People were offended by George Carlin. People were offended by Lenny Bruce in the 1950s. And if you listen to Lenny Bruce's comedy now, it is tame compared to what comedy came out. Or one of the movies that we reviewed, Clockwork Orange. Exactly. Yeah. If they made this movie today... It wouldn't have the same effect because this movie was made. And it would just be looking like you're, oh, you're just trying to rip off Mel Brooks. What the criticism, I think, ultimately would be if you get through all of the bull and the loud megaphone people, the criticism that the three of us would have is that you're doing a second-rate Mel Brooks. This has already been done, and you brought nothing new to the table. It's the whole idea of scourge that's happened in Hollywood now, where they're remaking things. Well, you're not bringing anything new to the table. You're just remaking movies, just to remake them, because you're going for nostalgia. And so that's the criticism that we would have. Oh, so what? You're going to remake Blazing Saddles, but it's not going to be nearly as funny. You're not going out on a limb anymore. This would be the Clerks 3 argument. Pretty much. Or the Hangover 2 argument. I mean, yeah, you're not breaking any new ground. Dumb and dumb You are, because this ground had already been broken. Yeah. And if you're making it today, you're not pushing why the are you making it? Well, I don't think that's really the question. I think the question was the type of movie. I mean, if this movie wasn't made in 19, you know, released in 1974, could you get away with releasing it now? And I think you could. I just don't think it would be as successful as it was then. When they released this film in 1974, they only released it in three cities. Los Angeles, Chicago, and New York. Makes and they sense. waited to see how well it did first before it would be released right. nationwide. And that was because they were worried that And then they played it for two summers movie. straight. Exactly. And even because in winter, of how I think. big of a success. Yeah. The next year, in 1975, this was the only movie that Warner Brothers put out in the entire summer, was they re-released this movie. That's a real tough question, because this pushed the boundaries. Comedy should push you up to the point that you feel uncomfortable. And that is where I think is comedy is the funniest. That's what comedy now has to decide. And that's why people like Dave Chappelle are trying to figure this out. How far can we push the envelope 
Dave Chappelle's a good one. Sarah Silverman's probably a better character study on this because she's offensive. That's her comedy is being offensive. And she pushes things just to the limit to see how far it can go. You know, but you don't have to be, and I don't want to drag this out, but when you when you say Sarah Silverman, she's actually funny. When I think of yes. people that are not funny, Lisa Lampanelli comes to mind. But she she's offensive just for the yes. sake of being offensive, and that's it. Yes. Sarah there Silverman is, is actually a very talented actress and a talented and comedian. That goes back to Dave it's Chappelle. An and so is Dave Chappelle. Because the fact you can be funny without being shocking, but then once in a while you're going to throw that shock in there just to mix it up a bit. Whereas Lepinelli, it's all just rude and crude type of humor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's and, rude. Basically, what Lisa Lampanelli is is she took Andrew Dice Clay's character in female form and combined it with Sam Kennison and took all of the intelligence of both characters out. There wasn't because Andrew Dice, it, Andrew Dice Clay's hey, playing Sam a part. Sam Kennison was a great comedian. Oh, I'm talking and, more about Andrew, Andrew, Andrew Dice. Dice Andrew Dice Clay here again, just like Mel Brooks. Just a part. He was playing a character. The funniest part of the whole Andrew Dice Clay thing was the people who didn't get that he was making fun of them. That is comedy on its highest level. When the people that you're making fun of are laughing and giving you the $85 to sit in the seat and laugh along with, because they think you're laughing wait, with him. Wait, you just said Andrew Dice Clay is the highest level of comedy? It's one of the whole persona. It's not just the stand-up. It's the whole idea that he was making fun of people, and he was making fun of people that didn't get the joke. And if you got the joke... And you got the fact that he was making fun of these people that are sitting there going, oh, yeah, that's how I'm supposed to talk. He was making fun of those people. And Sam Kinison was the same. Sam Kinison. I like Sam Kinison. Don't get me wrong, but I think they're two different type of comedians totally. But But at the time, they were both very shocking to the general people. Shocking, but but I... And I, we're going way off topic here. But, oh, I think this is great stuff. But I think, like, I never really heard Kesson really talk down a, a, a lot about women, which I heard Andrew Dice Clay do that often. And in fact, me and Jay went to go see a concert at Andrew Dice Clay's toward the, the early 90s, which by that time, I think he was pretty much done. It was over. It was, yeah, <laughs> it was pretty much over by that particular time. But we got free tickets, so I just went just to go. Was it's, he still doing the nursery rhymes? Yeah, he was still, just because okay. everybody expected dickery, him to dickery, do that. Dickery, dickery, duck. Yeah. Hey. It goes again <laughs> to what Blazing Saddles is. Right. Blazing Saddles is intellectual. It's intellectual right. comedy. It's not trying to be like these movies like 2000s that were just all about shock. They were a superhero movie and an epic movie. And, and all they were doing was making fun of other movies, but they were doing it in a, such a shocking way that none of it was intellectual and falls right. flat because all they're trying to do is potty humor from start to finish. Whereas movies like Airplane and Naked Gun, there's intellectual comedy in there and they give you a little potty humor here and there. Like if you try to do a Blaze uh, Saddles movie in this day and age, it still works as long as you have intelligent comedy backing it up. Here's an easy question for you guys. What is your favorite scene and least favorite scene of this movie? Mm. That's not, not easy. Maybe not that easy. This is tough. It is tough. I'll kick it off. Let's see. My favorite scene. 
This is tough. It's not the farting I'm... scene. I can tell you that I like the farting yeah, scene, but it's not the farting scene. My least favorite scene is is clearly the one where um, Lamar's is in the tub talking to his rubber froggy, which I don't think they had rubber Sorry. froggies and duckies in 1874. I thought that scene was a little not needed. I'm like, where are we going with this? He's the smartest man in the room, but yet he's talking to his, his, his you know, this froggy love daddy. Daddy loves froggy. You know, I'm like, all right, <laughs> true, calm true. down. My favorite scene, I'll, I'll be honest with you. My favorite scene in the movie is the one made for TV when uh, Governor Lepenemy is getting out of the stagecoach and talking to the reporters and then taking pictures with the uh, fake townspeople. That scene just cracks me up. It's not in the movie. It's in the, it's in the TV edited version, but it's just so damn stupid and funny. I get a kick out of it every time. My least favorite is probably the Native Americans. Seriously? I, it's funny, but, I mean, he's speaking Yiddish. Yeah. I mean, that's funny. They darker than we are. Come on. <laughs> I do like yeah. the, the circling around with just the one yeah. way. Yeah. That I like. I, I can see why. Maybe, I would say maybe the whole idea of them pulling up to the premiere of Blazing Saddles. I don't necessarily care for that. Well, that'll be my least favorite, even though yeah. I think it's funny. And that's and that's another thing that Mel Brooks brings back again in Spaceballs. But part of the scene that I like the most, it's so tough. I love it when Cleavon Little thinks that he's going to go out and he's going to be universally loved. And he gets the old lady craps on him. And Isn't it a beautiful come... morning today? <laughs> <laughs> and then he comes back in, and then that's the line that I said at the beginning. The whole interaction between him and... The reality hits uh, him, right? Yeah. Yeah, and the realities hit him, and then Gene Wilder gives his speech, and he, he calls him, you know... Morons. Morons. Because yeah. I think that that sums up the movie if very concisely in that whole five minutes. You should get all of the jokes after that scene. That makes me laugh every time, too. I would say my least favorite will be, unfortunately, when they break the fourth wall. Once they go break the fourth wall, it kind of goes downhill for me a little bit there. It doesn't match up to the rest of the movie. Oh, um, you mean the Warner Brothers? Once gotcha. they break into the other set. The Warner then, Brothers lot? Yeah. yeah, and then, well, not just the, yeah, the lot. So when they the set, when they're doing the musical. I like the, the pie fight. That's okay. But I agree with Ted. The rest of the way, when they're in the movie theater and then they're watching themselves, it just doesn't end. It's very fun. meta. Very it, meta. It, it, it is very mm -hmm. meta, but it's it's just not funny. It, it just loses me a little bit. Now, see, I wasn't there. crazy about the pie fight. You probably liked it because it's very like Marx Brothers <laughs> or very silent movie era stuff there. There he goes. But I Marx Brothers the, again. I know. I didn't think the pie fight was really even needed. Might not be needed, but I think it's okay there. And but the, I just felt like the last maybe fifth of the movie is just kind of okay. It's not bad by any means. I'm not saying I hate it. I don't hate it. I understand what they were trying to do. And for me, it doesn't work as well. As far as the best scenes, I hate to cheat here and have a tie, but it is the Madeline Kahn's "I'm so tired." And then it's when Gene Wilder's character is talking about why he retired as a Waco kid, and he's talking <laughs> about every. But he was trying to like go after him and have a gunfight, and then he's you know one on one with a was it an eight year old kid? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so he drops his guns and he turns around and the little bastard shot me shot in the me ass. Yes. Yeah. I the first time I heard that I cracked up laughing, and to this day it's for me my favorite line. So I think that is probably my favorite part of the movie. 
And I think that we just summed up in this whole section, this little section here, as to why comedy is so great and why it's subjective. There's parts that we find, some of us find funny one way and some of us don't find it funny the other way. And I think that's a testament to this movie, and I know that I've probably overused that particular phrase, that how good this movie really is. We've just proved exactly why it works. No matter how hard we try, we're not going to be able to articulate how awesome this movie is. You have to see it for yourself multiple times to understand the value of it. I mean, we've done our best that we can to give you why this movie is so amazing. But I think at the end of the day, anybody who reviews this movie is going to fall short because it's just on another level. I think we're playing our cards here on our reviews early. Well, why don't we go to our reviews then? Let's do it. Unfortunately, I think we did. Let's go with the reviews. I'll kick it off. Mine's easy. I love this movie. It's a top 10 movie for me. Everything is great in this movie. Even the stupid little nitpick stuff that we talked about doesn't even phase me on it. It's an hour and a half of pure comedy. And I love the fifth wall stuff at the end. I don't think it's the greatest part of the movie, but I still love it. The movie is a a solid A for me. It's top 10 in my life. Ken. I love this movie. I do think it's one of those movies that if you came to me and talked to me about it about 10 years ago, I would probably tell you it's a top 10 movie for me. But throughout the years, it has gone down slightly for me. But I did just mention how iconic it is and how hard it is to even tell you how awesome this movie is just because comedy is subjective for one thing so as ted said earlier one person you know might get a joke one way and the other person's going to get the joke the other way my problem is the last fifth of the movie so like the last 10 to 15 minutes of the movie i don't think sustains what has been done in the first hour hour and 15 minutes of the movie it's hard to keep that up it's hard to keep up from start to finish, that type of, you know, amazement. Gene Wilder is incredible as Waco Kid. Cleveland Little, I think all, we all agreed on it. We prefer him here over Richard Pryor, which is kind of amazing since how gifted Richard Pryor is. But I think for this movie itself, Cleveland Little was perfectly cast. And I said this a number of times, Madeline Kahn is my favorite actress. And this is the movie that started it all for me with Madeline Kahn. And she's perfect well-deserved Academy Award nomination. I don't know who won, but they must have did a heck of a job because Melon Khan did a heck of a job here. And we also talked about Harvey Corman. I could go down the list of more actors that did such a great job here. These four mains that I just talked about, their chemistry with each other is amazing. On that note, I'm going to go straight to my grade because we've talked about it long enough. For me, it's an A-. minus. Looks like Ingrid Bergman won for Murder of the Orient Express. Interesting. Good for her. That's weird, yeah. Yeah, Madeline Kahn was nominated. Diane Ladd for Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Talia Shire for The Godfather Part Two. Interesting. Ingrid Bergman for Murder on the Orient Express. And uh, Valentina Cortez for Day for Night. I don't know that movie. I don't know that movie. But the other ones, I know, and they're decent performances. So I'm not going to argue with it, but I have my preference. Hell, I'm surprised Talia Shire didn't win godfather mm-hmm. rolling away with everything but how about you uh ted what are your thoughts on this this movie is just awesome because it thumbs its nose at everybody and it is unapologetic in how it lampoons people and shows the idiocy of 
how stupid some people can be. Like I said before, it's all summed up perfectly in exactly what Gene Wilder says. You know, morons. There isn't one part of the movie that doesn't work. Eric is 100% right here. It's an hour and a half of comedy. And the very least, it should make you smile. You have to get to the deeper meaning, and that's what I really like, is comedy that makes you think. And this movie should make you think. This is a solid A for me. Definitely one of my favorite Mel Brooks movies. It's one of my favorite comedies. I can't imagine somebody being so uptight that they wouldn't even consider watching the movie because of something that might be slightly offensive. I don't understand that mentality, but for those of us who do, I will watch this movie until I can't breathe anymore. And I watch this movie probably maybe once or twice a year. Definitely a solid A for me. Well, I would say, at least in recent memory of movies that we've reviewed, we've all given this the A category. Yeah, this is an A for all of us. And Ken, what uh, movie are we going to be doing next time on the podcast? It's another Gene Wilder, Mel Brooks collaboration. It's Young Frankenstein. With another phenomenal supporting cast in this one. Can't wait to sit down and watch it and talk about it with you fine people. That is knockers. Something. Thank you, Doctor. <laughs> yes, Terry Gard is her finest. So we're looking forward to talking about that one with you. Ted, where can they uh, find us out there on the, on the World Wide Web? We can be found on Twitter at HookedOn underscore movies. And on whatever platform you're listening to us on, whether it be Good Pods, Apple, Spotify, Anchor, if you can, leave us a rating and review. It helps us get uh, get noticed and get looked up, and hopefully one day we will be able to achieve our goal of being a Rotten Tomatoes critic, because I think we're better than some of the schlock that they have on there right now. Agreed. And Ken, you're doing a lot there on Facebook. I've noticed a lot of those great articles on some of the movies we looked at. Check us out on our Facebook page, Hooked on Movies. If you are not a part of the community, just send us a request to join and you'll be welcomed with open arms. And yes, we discuss the movies that we review here, but we do that more than that. We discuss movies that you like and movies that you want to see us do. Definitely jump into the conversation. So do you play Journeys? open arms when they come that's not a bad idea we would probably have to get uh journey's permission we don't want steve perry to sue us can we get the fake steve perry to do it for us now since he doesn't uh sing anymore with that band yes (laughs) exactly or or we could get the cover band high infidelity to sing it for us (laughs) they're usually at rip fest or something not high infidelity (laughs) that's that's the ario speedwagon uh tribute band yeah do we really need to know who it is? I, I don't I mean, know. It doesn't matter. Really, isn't really at this point isn't Ario Speedwagon their own tribute? Band? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, basically most of those eighties, seventies, eighties bands are their own tribute band because they have like one original member left, if that. So yeah, hey, Champagne, Illinois finest. Ario that's right. Speedwagon. Ario, that's right. Yeah, it's like cheap trick. Rockford's finest. Yep. All right, well, that's all the time we have on the podcast. And if you are a fan of uh, juvenile comedies, you'll recognize my tagline, of course, from the 1977 movie, Kentucky Fried Movie. I'm not wearing any pants. Film at 11. See you at the movies. See you next time on Hooked on Movies. Mm -hmm.